Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we look back a year at a talk given by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, The Culture of Despair. That talk was given November 10, 2020, just after the presidential election. Today, we'll play that talk once again to see how the observations have panned out. Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Hedges has been telling truth to and against power since his earliest days as a radical reporter. He is an intellectual warrior who confronts American empire in the most incisive, challenging ways. The insights he provides into the deeply troubled state of our nation cannot be found anywhere else. Like many of our most important thinkers, Hedges has been relegated to the margins because of ideas deemed too radical, or true, for public consumption. Stay tuned for an hour with Chris Hedges on the culture of despair. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, skies and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured paid for by taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens in the times where the master thief combined conquer. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're sharing a talk with you given by the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Chris Hedges. The talk was titled The Culture of Despair, and it was a virtual event held November 10th, 2020, right after the presidential election. Today on the Project Censored Show, an hour with Chris Hedges. Welcome to this evening's event, and I am your host, Mickey Huff. I'm the host of the Project Censored Show, and we are celebrating our 10th year on the air this year. Our guest this evening is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges. He spent nearly two decades as a correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans, with 15 years at the New York Times. His books include Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle, Death of the Liberal Class, War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, Wages of Rebellion, His most recent book is America, The Farewell Tour. Chris Hedges has been telling truth to and against power since his earliest days as a radical journalist. He's an intellectual warrior who confronts American empire in the most incisive, challenging ways. If you want to read Chris Hedges, you can read him formerly at Truth Dig, and now he writes at Sheer Post. You can see his Emmy-nominated program on contact at RT America. Hedges has been a singular voice pushing against corporate media disinformation and the amnesia of establishment-received wisdom. Please give a warm welcome to Chris Hedges. Thanks, Mickey, and thanks for having me. I always enjoy being with you. Unfortunately, this is virtual. I title this talk, The Culture of Despair. I take the term from political scientist and historian Fritz Stern his book, The Politics of Cultural Despair, where he wrote that the genesis of fascism was rooted in despair, something Hannah Aaron also wrote. And so I wanted to examine that despair tonight in the United States. The physical and moral decay of the United States and the malaise it has spawned have predictable results. 
We have seen in varying forms the consequences of social and political collapse. During the twilight of the Greek and Roman empires, the Ottoman and Habsburg empires, Tsarist Russia, Weimar Germany, and the former Yugoslavia. Voices from the past, Aristotle, Cicero, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Joseph Roth, and Milovan Gilas warned us. But blinded by self, delusion, and hubris, as if we are somehow exempt from human experience and human nature, we refuse to listen. The United States is a shadow of itself. It squanders its resources in feudal, military, adventurism, a symptom of all empires in decay as they attempt to restore a lost hegemony by force. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, tens, hundreds of millions of lives wrecked, failed states, enraged fanatics. There are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, 24% of the global population, and we have turned virtually all of them into our enemies. We are piling up massive deficits and neglecting our basic infrastructure, including electrical grids, roads, bridges, and public transportation, to spend more on our military than all the other major powers on earth combined. We are the world's largest producer and exporter of arms and munitions. The virtues, we argue, we have a right to impose by force on others human rights, democracy, the free market, the rule of law, and personal freedoms are mocked at home. Where grotesque levels of social inequality, political dysfunction, and austerity programs have impoverished most of the public, destroyed democratic institutions, including Congress, the courts, and the press, and created militarized forces of internal occupation that carry out wholesale surveillance of the population, run the largest prison system in the world, and gun down unarmed citizens in the streets with impunity. The American burlesque, darkly humorous with its absurdities of Donald Trump, fake ballot boxes, conspiracy theorists who believe the deep state in Hollywood run a massive child sex trafficking ring, Christian fascists that place their faith in magic Jesus and teach creationism as science in our schools, 10-hour-long voting lines in states such as Georgia, militia members planning to kidnap the governors of Michigan and Virginia and start a civil war is also ominous, especially as we ignore the accelerating ecocide. All of our activism, protests, lobbying, petitions, appeals to the United Nations, the work of NGOs, and misguided trust in liberal politicians such as Barack Obama have been accompanied by a 60% rise in global carbon emissions since 1990. Estimates predict another 40% rise in global emissions in the next decade. That means we are less than a decade away from carbon dioxide levels reaching 450 parts per million, the equivalent to a two degrees Celsius average temperature rise, a global catastrophe that will make parts of the earth uninhabitable, flood coastal cities, dramatically reduce crop yields, and result in suffering and death for billions of people. This is what is coming, and we can't wish it away. It is despair 
that is killing us. It eats into the social fabric, rupturing social bonds. It manifests itself in an array of self-destructive and aggressive pathologies. It fosters what the anthropologist Roger Lancaster calls poisoned solidarity, the communal intoxication forged from the negative energies of fear, suspicion, envy, and the lust for vengeance and violence. Nations in terminal decline embrace, as Sigmund Freud understood, the death instinct. No longer sustained by the comforting illusion of inevitable human progress, they lose the only antidote to despair and nihilism. No longer able to build, they confuse destruction with creation. They descend into an atavistic savagery, something not only Freud, but Joseph Conrad and Primo Levi knew lurks beneath the thin veneer of civilized society. Reason does not guide our lives. Reason, as Schopenhauer puts it, echoing Hume, is the hard-pressed servant of the will. Men are not gentle creatures who want to be loved and who at the most can defend themselves if they are attacked, Freud wrote. They are, on the contrary, creatures among whose instinctual endowments is to be reckoned a powerful share of aggressiveness. As a result, their neighbor is for them not only a potential helper or sexual object, but also someone who tempts them to satisfy their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture, and to kill him. Homo homini lupus, who in the face of all his experience of life and history will have the courage to dispute this assertion. As a rule, this cruel aggressiveness waits for some provocation or puts itself at the service of some other purpose whose goal might also have been reached by milder measures. In circumstances that are favorable to it, when the mental counterforces which ordinarily inhibit it are out of action. It also manifests itself spontaneously and reveals man as a savage beast to whom consideration toward his own kind is something alien. Freud, like Primo Levi, got it. The moral life is a matter of circumstances. Moral consideration, as I saw in the wars I covered, largely disappears in moments of extremity. It is the luxury of the privileged. 10% of any population is cruel no matter what, and 10% is merciful no matter what, and the remaining 80% can be moved in either direction, Susan Sontag said. To survive, it was ne necessary, Primo Levi wrote of life in the death camps to quote, throttle all dignity and kill all conscience, to climb down into the arena as a beast against other beasts, to let oneself be guided by those unsuspected subterranean forces which sustain families and individuals in cruel times. It was, he wrote, a Hobbesian life, a continuous war of everyone against everyone. Varlam Shalomov, imprisoned for 25 years in Stalin's gulags, was equally pessimistic. All human emotions of love, friendship, envy, concern for one's fellow man, compassion, the longing for fame, honesty, had left us with a flesh that had melted from our bodies during our long fasts. 
The camp was a great test of our moral strength, of our everyday morality, and 99% of us failed it. Conditions in the camps do not permit men to remain men. That is not what camps were created for. Social collapse will bring these latent pathologies to the surface. But the fact that circumstances can reduce us to savagery does not negate the moral life. As our empire implodes and with its social cohesion, as the earth increasingly punishes us for our refusal to honor and protect the systems that give us life, triggering a scramble for diminishing natural resources and huge climate migrations, we must face this darkness, not only around us, but within us. The dance macabre is already underway. Hundreds of thousands of Americans die each year from opioid overdoses, alcoholism, and suicide, what sociologists call deaths of despair. This despair fuels high rates of morbid obesity, perhaps 40% of the public, gambling addictions, the pornification of society with its ubiquitous images of sexual sadism, along with the proliferation of armed right-wing militias and nihilistic mass shootings. As despair mounts, so will these acts of self-immolation. Those overwhelmed by despair seek magical salvations, whether in crisis cults, such as the Christian right, or demagogues, such as Trump, or rage-filled militias that see violence as a cleansing agent. As long as these dark pathologies are allowed to fester and grow, and the Democratic Party has made it clear it will not enact the kinds of radical social reforms that will curb these pathologies, the United States will continue its march towards disintegration and social upheaval, and removing Trump will neither halt nor slow the descent. An estimated 300,000 Americans will be dead from the pandemic in December, a figure that is expected to rise by 400,000 in January. Chronic underemployment and unemployment, close to 20%, when those who have stopped looking for work, those furloughed with no prospect of being rehired, and those who work part-time but are still below the poverty line are included in the official statistics instead of being magically erased from the unemployment rolls. Our privatized healthcare system, which is making record profits during the pandemic, is not designed to cope with a public health emergency. It is designed to maximize profit for its owners. There are fewer than 1 million hospital beds nationally, a result of the decades-long trend of hospital mergers and closures that have reduced access to care in communities across the nation. Cities such as Milwaukee have been forced to erect field hospitals. In states such as Mississippi, there is a shortage and often no ICU beds available. The for-profit, Health Service did not stockpile the ventilators, masks, tests, or drugs to deal with COVID-19. And why should it? That is not a route to increased revenue. And there is no substantial difference between Trump and Biden's response to the health crisis where over a thousand people a day are dying. 48% of frontline workers remain ineligible for sick pay. 43 million Americans have lost their employer-sponsored health insurance. There are thousands of bankruptcies a day. 
with perhaps two thirds of them tied to exorbitant medical costs. Food banks are overrun with tens of thousands of desperate families. Roughly 10 to 14 million renter households or 23 to 34 million people were behind on their rent in September. That amounts to 12 to $17 billion in unpaid rent. And that figure is expected to rise to $34 billion in past due rent in January. The lifting of the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures will mean that millions of families, many destitute, will be tossed onto the street. Hunger in US households tripled between 2019 and August of this year, according to the Census Bureau and the Department of Agriculture. The proportion of American children who do not have enough to eat, the study found, is 14 times higher than it was last year. A study by Columbia University found that since May, there are 8 million more Americans who can be classified as poor. Meanwhile, the 50 richest Americans hold as much wealth as half of the United States. Millennials, some 72 million people, have 4.6% of US wealth. Only one thing matters to the corporate state. It is not democracy. It is not truth. It is not the consent of the governed. It is not income inequality. It is not the surveillance state. It is not endless war. It is not jobs. It is not the climate emergency. It is the primacy of corporate power which has extinguished our democracy, taken from us our most basic civil liberties and left most of the working class in misery. It is about the increase and consolidation of wealth and power. Trump and Biden are each repugnant figures doddering into old age with cognitive lapses and no moral cores. Was Trump more dangerous than Biden? Yes. Was Trump inepter and more dishonest? Yes. Was Trump more of a threat to the open society? Yes. But is Biden the solution? No. Biden cannot plausibly offer change. He can only offer more of the same, and most Americans do not want more of the same. In America, we are only permitted to vote against what we hate. Partisan media outlets set one group against another, a consumer version of what George Orwell in his novel 1984 called the two minutes of hate. Our opinions and prejudices are skillfully catered to and reinforced with the aid of a detailed digital analysis of our proclivities and habits and then sold back to us. The result, as Matt Taibbi writes, is packaged anger just for you. The public is unable to speak across the manufactured divide. Politics under the assault is atrophied into a tawdry reality show centered on manufactured political personalities. Civil discourse has been poisoned by invective and lies. Power, meanwhile, is left unexamined and unchallenged. Political coverage is modeled as Taibbi writes on sports coverage. The sets look like the sets on Sunday NFL countdown. The anchor is on one side, there are four, commentators, two from each team. Graphics keep us updated on the score. Political identities are reduced to easily digestible stereotypes, tactics, strategy, image. The monthly tallies of campaign contributions and polling are endlessly examined while real political issues are ignored 
It is the language and imagery of war. This coverage masks the fact that on nearly all the major issues, the two ruling political parties are in complete agreement. The deregulation of the financial industry, trade agreements, the militarization of police, and the Pentagon has transferred more than $7.4 billion in excess military gear and hardware to nearly 8,000 federal and state law enforcement agencies since 1990. The explosion in the prison population, deindustrialization, austerity, support for fracking and the fossil fuel industry, the endless wars in the Middle East, the bloated military budget, the control of elections and mass media by corporations, and the wholesale government surveillance of the population. And when the government watches you 24 hours a day, you cannot use the word liberty. That is the relationship of a master and a slave. All have bipartisan support. And for this reason, these issues are almost never discussed. The goal is to set demographic against demographic. This stoking of antagonism is not news, it is entertainment, driven not by journalism, but marketing strategies to increase viewership and corporate sponsorship. News divisions are corporate revenue streams competing against other corporate revenue streams. The template for news, as Taibbi writes, in his book, Hate, Inc., the cover of which has Sean Hannity on one side and Rachel Maddow on the other, is the simplified morality play used in professional wrestling. By electing Joe Biden for president, we voted for something. We voted to endorse the humiliation of courageous women, such as Anita Hill, who confronted their abusers. We voted for the architects of the endless wars in the Middle East. We voted for the apartheid state in Israel. We voted for wholesale surveillance of the public by government intelligence agencies and the abolition of due process and habeas corpus. We voted for austerity programs, including the destruction of welfare and cuts to social security. We voted for NAFTA, free trade deals, deindustrialization, a real decline in wages, the loss of hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs and the offshoring of jobs to underpaid workers who toil in sweatshops in Mexico, China, or Vietnam. We voted for the assault on teachers and public education and the transfer of federal funds to for-profit and Christian charter schools. We voted for the doubling of our prison population, the tripling and quadrupling of sentences and huge expansion of crimes meriting the death penalty. We voted for militarized police, we voted against the Green New Deal and immigration reform. We voted for the fracking industry. We voted for a segregated public school system in which the wealthy receive educational opportunities and poor people of color are denied a chance. We voted for punitive levels of student debt and the inability to free yourself of those debt obligations even if you file for bankruptcy. We voted for deregulating the banking industry and the abolition of Glass-Steagall. We voted for the for-profit insurance and pharmaceutical corporations and against universal health care. We voted for defense budgets that consume more than half of all discretionary spending. We voted for the use of unlimited oligarchic and corporate money to buy our elections. And we voted for a politician who during his time in the Senate abjectly served the interests of MBNA, the largest independent credit card company headquartered in Delaware, which also employed Biden's son, Hunter. Biden was one of the principal architects of the wars in the Middle East. 
where we have squandered upwards of $7 trillion and destroyed or extinguished millions of lives. He is responsible for far more suffering and death at home and abroad than Trump. And if we had a functioning judiciary and legislative system, Biden, along with the other architects of our disastrous imperial wars, corporate plundering of the country and betrayal of the American working class would be put on trial, not offered up as a solution to our political and economic debacle. The Democrats and their liberal apologists adopt tolerant positions on issues regarding race, religion, immigration, women's rights, and sexual identity, and pretend this is politics. These issues are societal or ethical issues, and they are important, but they are not social or political issues. The seizure of control of the economy by a class of global speculators and corporations has ruined the lives of the very groups the Democrats pretend to defend. When Bill Clinton and the Democratic Party, for example, destroyed the old welfare system, 70% of the recipients were children. Those on the right of the political spectrum, and we must never forget that the positions of the Democratic Party would make it a far right party in Europe, demonize those on the margins of society as scapegoats. The culture wars mask the reality. Both parties are full partners in the destruction of our democratic institutions. Both parties have reconfigured American society into a mafia state. It only depends on how you want it dressed up. The power of politicians such as Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, or Mitch McConnell comes from being able to funnel corporate money to anointed candidates. In a functioning political system, one not saturated with corporate cash, they would not hold power. They have transformed what the Roman philosopher Cicero called a commonwealth, a res publica, a public thing or the property of a people into an instrument of pillage and repression on behalf of a global corporate oligarchy. We are serfs ruled by the obscenely rich, omnipotent masters who loot the US treasury, pay little or no taxes, and have perverted the judiciary, the media, and the legislative branches of government to strip us of civil liberties and give them the freedom to engage in tax boycotts, financial fraud, and theft. In the midst of the pandemic crisis, what did our ruling kleptocrats do? They looted $4 trillion on a scale unseen since the 2008 bailout overseen by Barack Obama and Biden. They gorged and enriched themselves at our expense while tossing crumbs out of the windows of their private jets, yachts, penthouses, and palatial estates to the suffering and despised masses. The CARES Act handed trillions in funds or tax breaks to oil companies. The airline industry, which alone got $50 billion in stimulus money. The cruise ship industry, a $170 billion windfall for the real estate industry. It handed subsidies to private equity firms, lobbying groups, whose political action committees have given some $200 million in campaign contributions to politicians in the last two decades. The meat industry and corporations that have moved offshore to avoid US taxes. The act allowed the largest corporations to gobble up money that was supposed to keep small businesses solvent to pay workers. It gave 80% of all tax breaks to millionaires and allowed the wealthiest to get stimulus checks 
that averaged $1.7 million. The CARES Act also authorized $454 billion for the Treasury Department's Exchange Stabilization Fund, a massive and secret slush fund doled out by Trump cronies to corporations that, when leveraged 10 to 1, can be used to create a staggering $4.5 trillion in assets. The act authorized the Fed to give $1.5 trillion in loans to Wall Street, which no one expects will ever be repaid. American billionaires have gotten over $500 billion richer since the pandemic. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, whose corporation Amazon paid no federal taxes last year alone, added over $70 billion to his personal wealth since the pandemic started. During this same period, 55 million Americans lost their jobs. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're sharing the talk given at a virtual event for KPFA and Project Censored with Chris Hedges called The Culture of Despair. After this brief break, we'll continue with this talk by Chris Hedges. Stay with us. Now, the molding of the public into warring factions works commercially. It works politically. It destroys, as it is designed to, class solidarity. But it is also a recipe for social disintegration. It propels us towards the kind of Hobbesian world Primo Levi and Sigmund Freud warned us about. I watched competing ethnic groups in the former Yugoslavia retreat into antagonistic tribes. They seized rival mass media outlets and used them to spew lies mythological narratives exalting themselves along with vitriol and hate against the ethnicities they demonized. This poisoned solidarity, which we are replicating, pumped out month after month in Yugoslavia, destroyed the capacity for empathy, perhaps the best definition of evil, and led to a savage fratricide. The United States awash in military-grade weaponry is already plagued by an epidemic of mass shootings. There are death threats against critics of Trump, including Representative Ilhan Omar. There was an aborted plot by 13 members of a right-wing militia group to kidnap and assassinate the governors of Michigan and Virginia and start a civil war. A Trump supporter mailed pipe bombs to prominent Democrats in CNN, an effort to decapitate the hierarchy of the Democratic Party, as well as terrorize the media outlet that is the party's principal propaganda platform. These dark urges, especially with Trump's base convinced the election was stolen, will only grow. The spark that usually sets such tinder ablaze is martyrdom. Aaron J. Danielson, a supporter of the right-wing group Patriot Prayer, was wearing a loaded Glock pistol in a holster and had bear spray and an expandable metal baton when he was shot dead on August 29th, allegedly by Michael Forrest Reinhold, a supporter of Antifa in the streets of Portland. A woman in the crowd can be heard shouting after the shooting, I am not sad that an effing fascist died tonight. Reinhold was ambushed and killed by federal agents in Washington state in what appears to be an act of extrajudicial murder. Once people start being sacrificed for the cause, it takes little for demagogues to insist that self-preservation necessitates violence. Political stagnation and corruption, along with economic and social misery, spawn what anthropologists call crisis cults. 
movements led by demagogues that prey on an unbearable psychological and financial distress and champion violence as a form of moral purification. These crisis cults already well established among followers of the Christian right, right-wing militia groups, and many of the cultish followers of Trump, peddle magical thinking and an infantilism that promises, if you surrender all autonomy, prosperity, restored national glory, a return to a mythical past, order and security. Trump was a symptom. He was not the disease. Far more competent and dangerous demagogues will rise if social conditions are not radically improved, and I do not expect Biden and a Republican-controlled Senate and judiciary to improve them to take Trump's place. Trump may have lost the presidency, but he has solidified an angry, dispossessed working class that cuts across racial lines and has embraced a right-wing populism. Trump in this election saw his support from white men decline. He managed to get 26% of his votes from non-white Americans, the highest percentage for a Republican since 1960. He took between 32 and 35% of the Latino vote, doubled his support with black women from 4% in 2016 to 8%, increased support among white women from 53% to 55%, and saw his support from black men jump from 13 to 18%. All this after a slew of accusations of rape and sexual assault, open misogyny and racist tropes designed to cater to white supremacists. Even Trump's support from the LGBTQ community went from 14 to 28%. And polling suggests that Trump lost the election because of his mishandling of the pandemic, the top issue for 41% of the voters who supported Biden three to one. Among those whose top concern was the economy, 28% of the electorate, Trump won 80% of the vote. What do these figures say? What do they portend for the two ruling parties? What do they mean if the Democrats continue to be captive to big donors in Wall Street and refuse to embrace the anti-corporate message and promises of Medicare for all, free higher education, higher corporate taxes, and regulation of big banks in Silicon Valley that drew such broad and enthusiastic support for Bernie Sanders? And will the Republicans capitalize on this proto-fascist grassroots discontent, much of it rural where Trump took 60% of the vote, or go back to its abject subservience to big business? I fear without radical reforms, we are headed for a Christianized fascism. The greatest moral failing of the liberal Christian church was its refusal justified in the name of tolerance and dialogue to denounce followers of the Christian right as heretics. By tolerating the intolerant, it ceded religious legitimacy to an array of con artists, charlatans, and demagogues and their cultish supporters. It stood by as the core gospel message, concern for the poor and the oppressed was perverted into a magical world where God and Jesus showered believers with material wealth and power. The white race became God's chosen race. Imperialism and war became divine instruments for purging the world of infidels and barbarians, evil itself. 
capitalism because God blessed the righteous with wealth and power and condemned the immoral to poverty and suffering became shorn of its inherent cruelty and exploitation. The iconography and symbols of American nationalism became intertwined with the iconography and symbols of the Christian faith. The mega pastors, narcissists, who rule despotic, cult-like fiefdoms make millions of dollars by using this heretical belief system to prey on the despair and desperation of their congregations, victims of neoliberalism and deindustrialization. These believers found in Trump, who preyed on this despair in his casinos and through his sham university, and these mega pastors, champions of the unfettered greed, cult of masculinity, lust for violence, white supremacy, bigotry, American chauvinism, religious intolerance, anger, racism, and conspiracy theories that are the core beliefs of the Christian right. When I wrote American Fascist, the Christian Right, and the War in America, I was quite serious about the term fascist. Tens of millions of Americans live hermetically sealed inside the vast media and educational edifice erected by the Christian right. In this world, miracles are real. Satan, allied with liberal, secular humanists and the deep state, along with Muslims, immigrants, feminists, intellectuals, artists, and a host of other internal enemies, is seeking to destroy America. Trump was God's anointed vessel to build the Christian nation and cement into place a government that instills biblical values. These biblical values include banning abortion, protecting the traditional family, turning the Ten Commandments into secular law, crushing infidels, especially Muslims, indoctrinating children in schools with biblical teachings and thwarting sexual license, which includes any sexual relationship other than marriage between a man and a woman. And Trump was routinely compared by evangelical leaders to the biblical King Cyrus, who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and restored the Jews to the city. Trump filled his ideological void with this Christian fascism. He elevated members of the Christian right to prominent positions, including Mike Pence to the vice presidency, Mike Pompeo, a secretary of state, Betsy DeVos, a secretary of education, Ben Carson, as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, William Barr as Attorney General, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court, and the televangelist Paula White to his Faith and Opportunities Initiative. Trump handed the Christian right veto and appointment power over key positions in government, especially in the federal courts. He installed 133 district court judges out of 677 total, 50 appeals court judges out of 179 total, and three out of nine U.S. Supreme Court justices. That's 19% of the federal trial judges currently in service. And nearly all of the extremists who make up these judicial appointments were rated as unqualified by the American Bar Association, the country's largest nonpartisan coalition of lawyers. Trump adopted the Islamophobia of the Christian fascists. He banned Muslim immigrants and rolled back civil rights legislation. He made war on reproductive rights by restricting abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood. He stripped away LGBTQ rights. He ripped down the firewall between church and state by revoking the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits churches, which are tax exempt from endorsing political candidates. His appointees, including Pence, Pompeo, and DeVos, throughout the government routinely 
used biblical strictures to justify an array of policy decisions, including environmental deregulation, war, tax cuts, and the replacement of public schools with charter schools, an action that permits the transfer of federal education funds to private Christian schools. At the same time, the Christian right is building paramilitary organizations, not only through ad hoc militias, but through mercenary groups of private contractors controlled by figures such as Eric Prince, the brother of Betsy DeVos, and the former CEO of Blackwater. I studied ethics at Harvard Divinity School with James Luther Adams, who had been in Germany in 1935 and 1936. Adams witnessed the rise of the so-called German Christian Church, which was pro-Nazi. He warned us about the disturbing parallels between the German Christian Church and the Christian right. Adolf Hitler was in the eyes of the German Christian Church a Volk Messiah, an instrument of God, a view similar to the one held by many followers of Trump. Those demonized for Germany's economic collapse, especially Jews and communists, were agents of Satan. Fascism, Adams told us, always cloaked itself in a nation's most cherished symbols and rhetoric. And fascism would come to America not in the guise of stiff-armed, marching brown shirts and Nazi swastikas, but in the mass recitations of the Pledge of Allegiance, the biblical sanctification of the state, and the sacralization of American militarism. Adams was the first person I heard label the extremists of the Christian right as fascists. And liberals, he warned, as in Nazi Germany, would be blind to the tragic dimension of history and radical evil and would not react until it was too late. This, I fear, is Trump's legacy, the empowerment of the Christian fascists. They are what comes next. Noam Chomsky, for this reason, was right when he warned that Pence was more dangerous than Trump during the impeachment hearings. For decades, the Christian fascists have been organizing to take power. They have built infrastructures and organizations, including lobbying groups, schools, colleges, and law schools, as well as media platforms to prepare. They have seeded their cadre into positions of power, while we on the left have seen our institutions and organizations destroyed or corrupted by corporate power and been seduced by the boutique activism of identity politics. FRC Action, the legislative affiliate of the Family Research Council, already gives 245 members of Congress a 100% approval rating for supporting legislation that is backed by the Christian right. This Christian fascism is an emotional life graft for tens of millions of Americans. It is impervious to science and verifiable fact. The Christian fascists by choice have severed themselves from rational thought and the secular society that almost destroyed them and their families and thrust them into deep despair. We will not placate or disarm this movement bent on our destruction by attempting to claim that we too have Christian values. This appeal only strengthens the legitimacy of the Christian fascists and weakens our own. These dispossessed people will either be reintegrated into the economy and the society and their shattered social bonds mended, or the movement will grow more virulent and more powerful. The Christian right is determined to keep the public focus on societal or ethical as opposed to economic issues. 
the corporate media, whether it supported or opposed the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, almost exclusively discussed her opposition to abortion and membership in People of Praise, a far-right Catholic sect that practices speaking in tongues. What our corporate masters, along with the Christian fascists, did not want examined was Barrett's subservience to corporate power, her hostility to workers, civil liberties, unions, and environmental regulations. And since the Democratic Party is beholden to the same donor class as the Republican Party, and since the media long ago substituted the culture wars for politics, the most ominous threat posed by Barrett and the Christian right was and is ignored. The road to despotism is always paved with righteousness. All fascist movements paper over their squalid belief systems with a veneer of morality. They mouth pieties about restoring law and order, right and wrong, the sanctity of life, civic and family virtues, patriotism and tradition to mask their dismantling of the open society and silencing and persecution of those who dissent. The Christian right awash in money from corporations that understand their political intent will use any tool, no matter how devious, from white right-wing armed militias to the invalidation of ballots to attempt to block Biden and Democratic candidates from assuming office. Capitalism driven by the obsession to maximize profit and reduce the cost of production by slashing workers' rights and wages is in fact antithetical to the Christian gospel as well as the enlightenment ethic of Immanuel Kant. But capitalism in the hands of the Christian fascists has become sacralized in the form of the prosperity gospel, the belief that Jesus came to minister to our material needs, blessing believers with wealth and power. The prosperity gospel is an ideological cover for the slow motion corporate coup d'etat. And this is why large corporations such as Tyson Foods, which places Christian right chaplains in its plants, Purdue, Walmart, and Sam's Warehouse, along with many other corporations, pour money into the movement and its institutions, such as Liberty University and Patrick Henry Law School. This is why corporations gave millions to groups such as the Judicial Crisis Network and the US Chamber of Commerce to campaign for Barrett's appointment to the court. Barrett has ruled to cheat gig workers out of overtime, greenlight fossil fuel extraction and pollution, gut Obamacare and strip consumers of protection from corporate fraud. As a circuit judge, she heard at least 55 cases in which citizens challenged corporate abuse, and she ruled in favor of corp corporations 76% of the time. Of course, our corporate masters do not care about abortion, gun rights, or the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. But like the German industrialists who backed the Nazi party, they know that the Christian right will give an ideological veneer to ruthless corporate tyranny. These oligarchs view the Christian fascists the same way the German industrialists viewed the Nazis, as buffoons. They are aware that the Christian fascists will trash what is left of our anemic democracy and the natural ecosystem. But they also know they will make huge profits in the process and the rights of workers and citizens will be ruthlessly suppressed. If you are poor, if you lack proper medical care, if you are paid substandard wages, if you are trapped in the lower class, if you are a victim of police violence, this is because according to the prosperity gospel, you are not a good Christian. 
in this belief system, you deserve what you get. There is nothing wrong, these homegrown fascists preach, with the structures or systems of power. Like all totalitarian movements, followers are seduced into calling for their own enslavement. The tinder that could ignite violent conflagrations lies ominously stacked around us. Millions of disenfranchised Americans who see no way out of their economic and social misery, struggling with an emotional void, are seething with rage against a corrupt ruling class and bankrupt liberal elite that betrayed them and, they believe, stole the election. They are tired of the political stagnation, grotesque, mounting social inequality and the punishing fallout from the pandemic. Millions more alienated young men and women also locked out of the economy with no realistic prospect for advancement or integration, gripped by the same emotional void, have harnessed their fury in the name of tearing down the governing structures and anti-fascism. These polarized extremes are inching closer and closer to violence. We have three options left. Reform, which given the decay in the American body politic is impossible revolution, or tyranny. If the corporate state is not overthrown, then America will soon become a naked police state where any opposition, however tepid, will be silenced with draconian censorship or force. Police in cities around the country have already thwarted the reporting by dozens of journalists covering the protests through physical force, arrest, tear gas, rubber bullets, and pepper spray. This will become normalized. The huge social divides often built around race will be used by the Christian fascists to set neighbor against neighbor. Armed Christian patriots will attack those groups blamed for social collapse and fraudulent elections. Dissent, even nonviolent dissent, will become treason. Peter Drucker observed that Nazism succeeded not because people believed in its fantastic promises, but in spite of them. Nazi absurdities, he pointed out, had been witnessed by a hostile press, a hostile radio, a hostile cinema, a hostile church, and a hostile government, which untiringly pointed out the Nazi lies, the Nazi inconsistency, the unattainability of their promises, and the dangers and folly of their course. Nobody, he wrote, would have been a Nazi if rational belief in the Nazi promises had been a prerequisite. The poet, playwright, and socialist revolutionary Ernst Toller was forced into exile and stripped of his citizenship when the Nazis took power in 1933, wrote in his autobiography. The people are tired of reason, tired of thought and reflection. They ask, what has reason done in the last few years? What good have insights and knowledge done us? After Toller committed suicide in 1939, W.H. Auden in his poem, In Memory of Ernst Toller wrote, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. They arrange our loves. It is they who direct at the end the enemy bullet, the sickness, or even our hand. Once the internal enemies are purged from the nation we are promised, America will recover its lost glory, except that once one enemy is obliterated, another takes its place. Crisis cults require a steady escalation of conflict and a steady stream of victims. Every new crisis becomes more urgent and more extreme than the last. This is what made the war in the former Yugoslavia inevitable. Once one stage of conflict reaches a crescendo, it loses its efficacy and must be replaced. 
by an ever more brutal and deadly confrontation, what Ernst Younger called a feast of death. These crisis cults are, as Drucker understood, irrational and schizophrenic. They have no coherent ideology. They turn morality upside down. They appeal exclusively to emotions. Burlesque and spectacle become politics. Depravity becomes morality. Atrocities and murder, as the federal marshals who gunned down Michael Forrest Reinhold in Washington State Illustrated becomes heroism. Crime and fraud become justice, greed and nepotism become civic virtues. The ruling elites will no more restore these ruptured social bonds and address the despair that grips America than they will respond to the climate emergency. And as the country unravels, they will reach for the familiar tools of state repression and the ideological prop provided by Christian fascism. It is up to us to carry out sustained acts of nonviolent mass resistance if we mobilize in large and small ways to fight for an open society, to create communities that, as Václav Havel wrote, live in truth. We hold out the possibility of pushing back against these crisis cults, holding at bay the brutality that accompanies social upheaval as well as slowing and disrupting the march towards ecocide. This requires us to acknowledge that our systems of governance are incapable of being reformed. No one in power will save us. No one but us will stand up for the vulnerable, the demonized, and finally, the earth itself. All we do must have the single aim of crippling the power of the ruling elites in the hopes of new systems of governance that can implement the radical reforms to save us and our world. The most difficult existential dilemma we face is at once to acknowledge the bleakness before us and act, to refuse to succumb to cynicism and despair. And we will only do this through faith, the faith that the good draws to it the good, that all acts that nurture and protect life have an intrinsic power, even if the empirical evidence shows that things are getting worse. We will finally find our freedom, our autonomy, our meaning, and our own social bonds among those who resist with us. And this will allow us to endure, if not triumph. Thank you. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured paid for by taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, those are capacity citizens. In the times where the master thief could
fight and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach on potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. Yeah.